Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Patrick Hicks is the author of more than 10 books, including The Collector of Names, Adoptable, and This London. He also wrote the critically acclaimed novel, The Commandant of Lubitschek, which was published by Steerforth Random House. His latest book is titled In the Shadow of Dora. In addition to writing for prestigious journals and magazines, Patrick has been nominated seven times for the Pushcart Prize. He was a finalist for the High Plains Book Award, and his poetry has appeared on NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and American Life in Poetry. Patrick's first novel held company among only 20 books selected for National Reading Group Month, and it was listed as a top pick for first-year college programs. A winner of the Glimmer Train Fiction Award, he is also the recipient of a number of grants and fellowships, including awards from the Bush Artist Foundation, the South Dakota Arts Council, the Loft Literary Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. He was also recently a finalist for an Emmy and is the radio host of Poetry from Studio 47. A dual citizen of Ireland and America, Patrick Hicks is the writer-in-residence at Augustana University in South Dakota, as well as a faculty member at the MFA program at Sierra Nevada University. He has lived in Northern Ireland, England, Germany, and Spain, but has returned to his Midwestern roots. When not writing, he enjoys watching thunderstorms roll across the prairie with his British wife, and he is a sucker for playing in the backyard with his son, who was adopted from South Korea. I'm so honored to welcome Patrick Hicks to the Make Meaning Podcast. Patrick Hicks, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled to have you here, a fellow writer and one who's so accomplished. And I want to begin with your notion of what it means to be a writer and the power that the writer wields over the reader. So in doing my research before this interview, um, I came across your notes that you believe writing is a gift and that good writing should cast illumination. Um, And you've also said writing should delight the reader, even as it offers moments of education. So tell me more about all that. Um, Yes, Uh, I I, I have sort of a mission statement for myself that I came up with many years ago. And I I decided if I'm going to commit myself to writing, I have to know what I want my writing to look like. So I decided to create a mission statement, just like you would uh, if you were an entrepreneur. And let's face it, writers are a version of entrepreneur. I sell books, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came up with the mission statement to write books that are unputdownable and will enlighten and delight the reader. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe that literature is is a gift. And I, I, I try to approach it so that the reader feels like they are, it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one likes to be talked down to. And, and, and I take that approach with my writing. I, I see, um, I see a, uh, a novel that I might give to someone as like a, this uh, conduit between the two of us where we hold it together mm-hmm. because without me writing it and without the reader reading it, I mean, we don't have that communication. Mm-hmm. And I am just so mesmerized by how astonishing it is that you can put ink on a page and you can have a relationship with someone through imagination and words that, you know, maybe they've been dead for centuries. You know, mm-hmm. if I pick up Charles Dickens, for example, 
he's he's hypnotizing me from beyond the grave. You know, if I read um, uh, one of his novels, you know, I'm thinking about A Christmas Carol, you know, that's a type of hypnosis. Mm-hmm. And he, he makes me feel like I'm in London and it's the 1840s again. Mm-hmm. Now, I find this endlessly fascinating. It's interesting. So um, I don't know if you've read the Outlander books, the series. I haven't, but no. no. <laughs> so the interesting thing is because of the pandemic, um, you know, we've, we've all been binging on Netflix and things like that. And so I discovered Outlander, the TV show. And my husband and I got really into it, watched all five seasons that are out there. Um, and then somebody said to me, well, what about the books? I had no clue. And I'm not the kind of person who will watch a movie or a TV show before a book. It's always the book first. And so I ordered the eight books in the series and they're like 900 pages each or more, um, which is incredible. And I, I started getting fascinated by this author. And so her name is Diana Gabaldon and she was not a novelist. And she just decided one day in like the late eighties, early nineties, that she was just going to try her hand at fiction. <laughs> and she has like literally eight books. The ninth is on its way out about this series in uh, 18th century Scotland, time travel, romance, uh, war, history, all kinds of stuff. And now I'm reading the books, even though I watched the TV first and I can't put it down. The books are definitely better, but it's, it's creating a whole other world. So it's travel and it's relationship. And it's, um, I always say I I write to make sense of the world and in a way that's what we do, but, um, just the way you put words together. And like you said, all of a sudden I'm, I'm there, I'm in Scotland in the Highlands in the 1700s and, and that's remarkable. It, it is truly a gift. You're absolutely right. I, uh, I, yes, it, it is. I mean, you can time travel, you can go to these different places. And I, that's one of the things I find so fascinating about fiction is that we create these worlds which do not exist. You know, I'm thinking of Hogwarts, for example. Yeah. And yeah. yet, and yet we can, we enter that world and even though it doesn't exist and it's, you know, made up there, it's the best way to tell the truth, which is such a paradox for me. But, um, I find that to be very, very true in order to explain the human condition or maybe moments from the past, sometimes fiction is exactly the thing you need to tap into in order to understand that time period better. Hmm. Um, And this isn't to denigrate, you know, the hard work that historians do, but I think there's something special about fiction because you get inside the skin of someone who lives that, that experience at the time. And, And I think maybe that's the purpose of fiction is that it allows us to shed our own skin and our own bodies and to have another life for the duration of time it takes us to read the book. You know, what's interesting too, and I'm just sort of contemplating what you're saying about how that's truth. And, you know, I have been really, um, really spending time lately on this idea of, you know, what history is real history? What is the truth? And so history, as we know it, is really whose story got into the books and whose didn't becomes sort of a um, a mirage, or maybe it never existed. And so we do such a disservice to all kinds of people and communities and circumstances when we we say this is history and this is not. And so I feel like in fiction, we can correct that and we can say, well, what if this were actually the history? Or what if there's an alternative truth that we're not considering and we have to you know, pay homage to the possibilities? I don't know what you think about that. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that um, I wanted to write the the my novel, which recently came out in the shadow of Dora, because I wanted to look at the real life intersections between the Holocaust and the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. And what happened in a, a little known concentration camp called Dora Mittelbau, it, it, it changed the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And yet that's a story that absolutely has been buried. 
And Mm -hmm. it frustrated me and it kind of angered me the more that I did research that that was not a part of the the more glorious story of rocketry and space exploration. You know, I have that in my list of questions and so we're gonna jump to it. Um, But how did you get that idea even? How did you even stumble on it? Because I've studied a ton of Holocaust history. I had never heard of that concentration camp. I was amazed. And of course, the connection with the space age was foreign to me. So tell me how you discovered it and what inspired you to, to take that path. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm such a space nerd. You know, I grew up in the 70s and my dad was very interested in the Apollo program. And so I, and we went to the Kennedy Space Center when I was 10 and I'm walking around with like my eyes were just like saucers. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it was just such a, a, an amazing experience to, to be there and to, to look at the launch pad like that's where Apollo 11 took off. I mean, maybe you can tell from my voice that I'm still like a little boy and all of that. Um, So, you know, with my first novel, uh, it was The Commandant of Lubezich, which is about the Holocaust. And it it was a hard, bruising novel to write. And when I finished it, I I said to myself, okay, the next novel needs to have um, a little more hope to it. So I thought, well, maybe maybe I could start writing about um, my fascination with space. And the more that I, I I thought about it, I guess that you know my research in the Holocaust came back, and I, I I saw this this relationship between Apollo and then the very first rocket, the V2. And we think of the space age beginning in Russia or America, but it actually began in Nazi Germany. They were the first to put something into space, wow. uh, the V2 rocket, and that was built by slave laborers in in Dormitelbau. So I'm I'm finally getting around to answering your question. <laughs> it's I, all good. I, it, the, the inspiration is such an amazing thing. I could see the whole plot line within about 60 seconds of my imagining it, where what if I had a character that was Jewish and was forced to build these rockets um, in this underground concentration camp, and then he was liberated and he immigrates to America because he has lost his entire family. Mm-hmm. And because of the specialized knowledge that he has, he gets hired by NASA. Well, what what would that be like for someone to experience these two incredible moments in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and and so the, the, that's where the story came from. I love it. I love that you're um, giving new life to it and, and educating for sure, you know, while you're entertaining as well. So um, thank you for that. So you've amassed quite a collection of work and I'd love to hear when you began writing and, you know, what was the inspiration that started what has become a lifelong devotion? I wish I could pinpoint that. Um, and, you know, I could easily ask the same question of you because I know you're a writer and, you know, deep thinker. And I, I don't really have a satisfactory answer. I was one of these kids that was very, very fortunate that at a young age, I knew I wanted to be a writer. You know, I think I was writing stories when I was seven or eight years old. They were terrible, but, you know, I was still writing them. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> and, um, and when I got to college, I, I, I thought, okay, if you're serious about this, you really do need to you major in English and you need to be far more serious and professional. And then it just became a question that every writer has to answer at some point in time. Okay, this is what I want to do, but how do I keep the wolf from the door and how do I pay my bills? Yeah. Um, and once I kind of figured that piece out, I was off to the races. And I've never really looked back. I mean, I so enjoy the act of writing mm-hmm. um, so much. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're writing, but you're also teaching writing. So like, give me like a picture of your regular life. Like how much time spent writing? How much time teaching? Um is it enough? Do you ever want to be in that position where you're like just writing all the time or, you know? Um, I'm laughing because uh, my wife and I were talking about this very question just a couple <laughs> of days ago. And I I love teaching writing. Um, yeah. I don't know. I can't see myself giving that up because 
you know, I predominantly teach undergraduates from 18 to 22, and it's really remarkable to help them get their voice and maybe write about stories that they they have to learn how to be brave to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy that process of that give and take and uh, sort of encouraging them and, and sort of guiding them in some kind of way. Uh, so I, I find that really intellectually nourishing. Mm-hmm. So I try to divide up my day where I, I'm usually in my office by about 6.30 in the morning and I'll write for maybe three hours mm-hmm. and then I'll teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and because um, I teach at a university, it means I've got the summers off. Mm-hmm. So, well, off in quotation marks. So that's when I'm doing my research or, or doing um, any sort of travel that I need mm-hmm. to do for my research. So uh, it's a very monastic existence for me in the summer where it's just like me in my office or you know me traveling alone on uh, by myself. It's interesting because um, I was a journalist for 15 years. And so I was writing for a living and I, I've had a number of books um, published that were sort of side projects. It was never my first uh, priority was to you know spend my time writing books. So it was like when I could steal moments or hours or, or whatever I could do. So I feel like I've had this, this lifelong desire to like, you know, oh, what if I could just leave it all and, and spend my time writing, you know? And so now I'm like at midlife and I've been in marketing and PR now for 13 years. And I'm just like, does that come? You know, am I going to be brave enough to take that leap? And when I do, am I going to miss all this stuff? You know, like, is it just... You know what I mean? When I hear you say three hours a day, I love that. And I think, um, what could I be writing if I did give myself those three hours a day? And yet I have never done that. So that's um, that's a pretty courageous leap, I think, isn't it? You know, then thank you for that. But really, I'm driven by demons. You know, my wife can tell if I haven't written because I get really grumpy. <laughs> and and she'll actually say, have you written anything for a while? And I'm like, no. And, she, you know, she's very supportive. She's like, well, go back to work over the weekend. <laughs> get something done, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and it's just, um, how I'm sort of built, I guess. I just, um, I really enjoy the process of creating these, these worlds through ink and paper. Yeah. You know, and you said that excellent writing is an act of hypnosis on the reader. And I, I, I agree with that. I also think it's an adventure. I mean, you can literally go to other destinations and worlds without ever leaving, um, which in a pandemic is highly helpful, but you know, why else do you think writing is essential and what does it do for our lives? Like the act of writing. So not just reading what, you know, courageous souls like you put out into the world, but sitting down to write. And I, I'm going to sort of caveat that question with, um, I teach college writing too. I'm an adjunct faculty member at University of Detroit Mercy, and I teach mostly freshman composition. So I'm not really teaching creative writing, although I have. And I feel like there's this hesitance amongst my students to to engage, engage with their voice and to let themselves be brave and, and vulnerable and creative. It's more like, what do you want from me so I can deliver it to you? And so I feel like there's something essential about writing and finding your voice. And it does something for each individual, but but I'm not sure what that is. And and I feel like everybody needs it, but I don't know that everybody gets it. So what do you think? Yeah, it's such a rich question. I, I think... This is my first, this is how I'm going to answer the question now. I'm, I might answer it differently if you ask me tomorrow or next month. But I think if we learn how to write and channel our voice, I think that alone is an act of bravery. And I think if we can be brave on the page, I think that can only but, you know, in bleed over to the rest of our lives where maybe mm-hmm. maybe we'll be willing to stand up and say, that's wrong, or I think that's right. Um, and I think finding your voice internally and bringing life to stories that maybe you think would be better off buried, 
that can lead to you, you know, be, maybe being more adventurous in other things, hmm. um, which is what I encourage my students. And it sounds like you do as well to, to try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's the aspect of me as a, as a reader, because obviously I love reading. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about reading is that I, I get to have these, um, how, do, how do I put this? I'm put into situations that I probably wouldn't be put into in my normal life. Hmm. So it's like almost like game theory because I'm following the protagonist and I'm thinking, would I do that? Would I do this? And you kind of want to see what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that gap that that's what keeps the pages turning. And that's really hard to teach beginning writers. It really is. And I think also finding your own voice is a, it's an interesting process. I mean, I'd like to hear how you discovered your voice. I know that when I was in grad school for my MFA in writing, it was, um, it just, and I can look back and say now that I understand it, but I didn't know it at the time, but by reading all kinds of voices and then you inadvertently, I don't know if you did this, but you try, you sort of like try on their style. Like I found myself mimicking and I'm like, oh my God, am I plagiarizing? But it's just the process. And then you break through at a certain point and, and it's like only your voice but you have to get through all that to get to your voice, right? I mean. Oh, oh my God, totally. I totally <laughs> love that a fellow writer such as yourself is feeling the same way because when I was starting out, I mean, I'm from, I grew up in Minnesota. So, you know, I read F. Scott Fitzgerald who grew up literally like 20 minutes away from where I, I was raised. Mm-hmm. And then one of my my literary heroes is Tim O'Brien who wrote The Things They Carry. He's from Minnesota. So when I was in college, you know, I was just reading their work because I thought, wow, these are two Minnesota guys that wrote these incredible books. You know, maybe something's in the water. Hope, I hope, I hope, right? And, um, and and I found myself when I was 18, 19, 20, trying to mimic their voice, just, just as you said. Yeah. And then in that mimicry, I think you find out who you are, mm-hmm. which is a strange thing to do. And I wish I was better at, I wish I could play a musical instrument because I wonder if that's it for, say, guitarists. I mean, mm-hmm. do you find out what your sound is by trying to replicate, I don't know, Jimi Hendrix or <laughs> Spanish guitar? I, I just don't know. And, yeah. But I think that maybe, maybe they start off the same way we do as literary artists. I'm so glad to hear you say that. It's like a kinship of, of creative people, you know, that there's just this process that you don't understand until you've gone through it and you can look back and be like, oh yeah, that's that's how I emerged into this yeah. voice, you know? Um, and I do see things in my writing where I'm like, oh my gosh, I always do that. You know, it must be my voice. And it's just familiar, but it 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 came after a lot of sweat, you know, and, and effort. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're at this really pivotal time for storytelling in the world. You know, I know that stories bring us together and they hold memory, um, which are things you believe. And, and we can also see the past and imagine possibilities and new futures. But we have this rampant storytelling right now with 24-7 news and social media channels, for better or for worse, um, and they're sharing stories that are true and otherwise. And of course, there's there's this disbelief in story right now. Like there's no actual absolute fact or faith in the in the existence of fact, I guess I would say. Yeah. So I was wondering what you think about, uh, you know, is the danger and the beauty of a time like this? you know, where we're so motivated by story, it's like sort of wallpapering our existence, um, whether it's true or not. So what do you think about that? I find it, well, worrying for for sure, because I wonder how you can have a functioning constitutional republic when people don't agree on basic things. Yeah. That is deeply worrying to me. And yet, 
we're also at a point in our history where we're finally, finally beginning to crack open stories that have been buried for generations, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, and we're, we're turning towards stories that have always been there, but we have maybe refused to listen to them. Yeah. Um, and I find, I find that exciting and worrying. And I don't, I don't have a very good answer for this, mm-hmm. this whole sort of uh, idea of um, the hoax, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a hoax or, or, or fake news. And there was someone that interviewed me a couple months ago about my, my recent novel. And, and she noticed towards the end, I was talking about how some people refer to the Holocaust as a hoax and some people refer to the Apollo missions as a hoax. And, mm-hmm. and it was a really kind of rich discussion and, uh, you know, one is just morally laughable <laughs> with the idea <laughs> that Apollo didn't happen. The other is morally repulsive, um, you know, but I, I'm struck by this. And maybe you can maybe you can tell that I'm trying to articulate what's in my head, because on the one hand, we have the Holocaust, which represents the worst of what we are capable of doing to each other. Yeah. And then Apollo represents the very best of what we are capable of doing with each other. Right. And I don't think it's accidental that there are people that deny those realities because hmm. denying those realities means you don't have to confront the spectrum of humanity they represent. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I necessarily answered your question here, but it's been with us for a long time. And maybe we're just noticing it more because, as you said at the beginning with the 24-hour news cycle, it's maybe more loud in yeah. our in our ear than it has been in the past. Well, and there's, there's no reprieve from it. So, you know, I have four teenagers and that's their whole existence, you know, like everything is validated or invalidated if it, you know, by social media. And so, um, and I can have all my, you know, middle-aged musings about this, but, um, but I also wonder at the same time, you know, as, as alarming as I find so many things today, if it's any different from any other time in humanity's history, because there's always been new technologies that people have been skeptical of that have been um, out of control at the beginning, and then they temper themselves and they become very useful. And there's always been belief and disbelief or different versions of truth. Um, yeah. You know, so I just wonder, I mean, I love to see, like, I'm glad you mentioned Black Lives Matter. And also indigenous stories are really coming to the fore right now. And, and I, you know, it sometimes it's just less painful to not admit that those stories are here and underlying everything we do. But we have to, you know, we, we just had Thanksgiving. And I sort of, I love Thanksgiving and I was really uncomfortable with it because I just feel like it's intellectually and morally dishonest to be celebrating on a day that um, really, you know, sort of sparked the beginning of a, of a genocide of, of yeah. Native peoples. And so, you know, I feel like by writing news stories, are we giving a chance to reclaim voices or, or are we just making ourselves feel better? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know either. I um, well, There are many ways I, I would love to sort of continue the conversation here. I mean, I live in South Dakota, and my neighbors are the Lakota. I mean, most people listening to uh, your podcast might know them as the Sioux, mm-hmm. but that's a word that doesn't actually exist in their language. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I live in the state where wounded knee happen, yeah. and, you know, just incredible suffering. Uh, and I'm aware of that. Uh and it wasn't until I moved here that I began to really think deeply about what happened in my nation's history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other thing that struck me is um, I, when I was growing up, my mother is an immigrant from Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, and that meant that I could get an Irish passport, which I did when I was 23, 23 years old. So I, mm-hmm. I lived in Europe for seven years and I moved to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted to know that half of me, that Irish half of me. Yeah. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it was such an education for me because you had the Catholics and the Protestants um, literally at war with each other. And they would use the same moments in history, but it was a different vantage point. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm older, I look back at that and I think what a gift it was for me to recognize that history, you can have the same facts, mm -hmm. but they mean different things to different people where the heroes on one side are the villains for another. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. When I was a journalist um, early in my career, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while, and I had the opportunity to, opportunity to hear Jerry Adams at the National mm -hmm. Press Club. Mm -hmm. And I was so enamored with him and the passion that he brought. And this was in the mid-90s. And so I think um, we were coming out of the troubles at that time, maybe, or yeah, yeah. You know, nearing its end. And uh, I remember writing a poem, just a, so passionate and in favor of him and his stance and the IRA. And of course I was in my twenties, so you can be very like, you know, radical and, and questioning and stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a very dear friend who's, who grew up in Dublin. She lives in London now, but um, you know, that was a very different perspective for her too. And so, and of course I come from a Jewish heritage. And so when I would go to visit her in Dublin, you know, her mother would be like, there's one synagogue, I'm going to give you all the information and, you know, don't tell the priest I told you. And, you know, so it was like, I just feel like the perspective does change the story, and yet it's the same story, but it can be told in so many different ways. Absolutely. And I, I guess this gets back to how we, we started off with this wonderful sort of discussion about, about truth. And um, I certainly don't have any good answers, but I, I love that the conversation is continuing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to your writing. I want to hear a little bit about your process and what you love about it. So, you know, how do you begin a book project? And then do you have a routine? Like when you're, when you have a project in front of you, how do you map it out? How do you see it through? Um, and what do you love about that process? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, I'm rubbing my hands together right now because it's such a, it's such a good meaty question. Um, and, uh, I, d I thought when I wrote my first novel, I was both naive and arrogant insofar as I thought, right, I've written my first novel, it's published, I know how to write the next one. <laughs> and I, oh my God, how foolish was that? Because I've quickly discovered that each novel is like a planet of its own where the gravity is different, the weather systems are different, <laughs> you know, everything is different. And I, I'm glad I know that now as I'm about to embark on writing my third novel. So what I tend to do is I come up with um, an idea of where I would like it set. Mm -hmm. And then I one of the first things I do is I come up, I don't think I've told hardly anyone this, Lynn, but I come up with what I call the needs. Okay. Um, and then I write those at the top of the manuscript or my word file. And, and the needs is basically like, what do I want the reader to think about beyond the story? You know, what do I want them when I they close the book? What, what do I want them to think about? So that's where I start mm -hmm. off with. Okay. And then, and then I think about the narrative arc, and I, I sort of take it from there. Mm -hmm. And usually, because my work is is grounded, it's historical fiction. I do an awful lot of research ahead of time, and usually my work is grounded in a specific place in history. So I'll want to go to that place okay. and do research on the ground. And then at that point in time, I come back, or sometimes I'm writing in my hotel room or whatever, mm -hmm. and then I come back and I'll plow through the first draft, and I try to get the first draft done in about three months. Okay. And that is my least favorite part of writing, is the first draft, because <laughs> okay. I don't like it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I'm, I much prefer rewriting. You know? okay. that, that's the fun part for me. Uh-huh. It's interesting. I So I've written uh, one and a half novels. They've not been published. Um, the first one took me... 
maybe nine months. I wrote like three mornings a week. It was probably 20 years ago before I had kids. And I had a whole routine of going to a coffee shop because back then, you know, we had different technology. And I remember that I got to a point where the characters sort of wrote the book. Like I got into it and, and then when I would come back and I would be like, well, where did I leave off so I can pick up? I'm like, who wrote that? You know, like yeah, just sort of took on a life of its own. And I was so in love with it. And I remember I, I finished it and I gave it to like five people to read and critique who were writers and very generous to me, which just sort of sent me into like a, you know, spiral because they had lots of feedback, lots of things that needed changing. Um, and as you know, it has never been published. So, um, you know, I feel like there's that falling in love with your characters and your story. And then the rewriting to me is like the painful part where, I mean, it's easier because you have material that you can work with, yeah. but it's, it's like, Oh, I just want it to be like really great. So that people will just want to read it and, and can't put it down, you know, and maybe I'm not a novelist, so it might not be in my destiny, but how long does the revision process take you? I've discovered that it, it's usually the same number of drafts. My first novel went through seven drafts and that includes the drafts with my editor. Okay. My second novel curiously went through seven drafts. And I've discovered that the word count for both novels is the difference is only 250 words. So clearly I have the same narrative throw and length and it, it works for me, I mm -hmm. suppose. Usually it takes from the time I finish the first draft, um, I, I because I love rewriting and editing and trying to make it the best I possibly can, usually takes me about a year, maybe a year and a half before I feel like it's comfortable enough that I can send it off to someone. Okay. Um, and if I've done my job properly, um, I want to get the reader into that hip, hip, that hypnotic space, that dream space where they they forget their reading. Yeah. And my wife is not trained in writing in any way, so I I give her my the book first. <laughs> okay. And if she can't put it down, then I know I've, I'm onto something. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Oh, wonderful. So it's built in at home. You know, it's like. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, what when you have the book come out then? Does it feel like you're already on to the next project or do you bask in it for a little bit? You know, and I know now times are different with the pandemic and hopefully it'll be over before too long, but you know, with book tours and signings and speaking engagements, are you already, is your head already in the next book, but you still have to sort of give life to this one? Or do you sort of have that as part of your process? You are so right, Lynn. That is exactly where my headspace is. Uh -huh. With my first novel, which is about um, Operation Reinhardt, this particular phase of the Holocaust, the, the deadliest phase of the Holocaust, I, I wrote it and it was published and I thought, okay, you know, I've, I, I'm really pleased and maybe I'll even use the word proud of that particular novel, but I, I didn't realize that um, I'm still, it came out six years ago and I'm still doing readings from that particular huh. novel. Wow. which I'm, I'm honored by, believe me. And I'm totally humbled that I'm asked to speak about that particular novel. But my, my, my creative imagination right now is already on the third novel. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know the characters. I have at least half of the plot. I've already done on-ground research. I've done all of the library research. And I am just chomping at the bit to write this thing. Mm -hmm but I find it really hard to do that during the academic year. So I'm focusing on these other projects that keep me writing during the day. Interesting. Can I ask what the next book is going to be about? Absolutely. I, I, I won't give away too much, but um, the first one was about Operation Reinhardt. This one uh, that just came out is about Dora Mittelbau and the real life connections between the Holocaust and the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. And the third one, I'm really interested in this relationship between gender and violence. Hmm. Um, because one of the 
concentration camps just north of Berlin was a place called Ravensbrück, and it mm. was only for women. And there were female guards who were every bit as pernicious and violent as their male counterparts. Mm. And I, I want to explore this story, which I don't think a lot of people know much about. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by how women in concentration camps tended to act differently than men. So this mm-hmm. is kind of what I want to explore. There's a larger story there, of course, but this is the, remember I talked about the needs earlier? Yes. Those are the needs. Okay. So yeah. three novels about the Holocaust in some way, I have to ask, like, is this your theme then? Or is there a fascination or a connection that draws you to explore that that conflict? I wish, you know, I, I've been asked this question a number of times and I, I don't feel like I have a, I do not have a satisfactory answer because I'm an Irish Catholic kid that grew up in a river town in Minnesota. And as far as I know, I didn't lose anyone in that monstrous genocide that happened in Europe. Um, but I, I remember as a kid, I was, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years old, there was a documentary on PBS and it was um, black and white footage filmed by the, the British in Bergen-Belsen and it horrified me. And I was just appalled that there's no sense of justice and that feeling has never really left me. Mm. Um, so, um, so I've been doing research on this for more than my adult life. And I've made a point to go to many of the places in Germany and Poland. Um, I had the great honor to go to Yad Vashem about a year ago mm-hmm. and spend time in Jerusalem. So uh, rather than fight this, I realized that this is, um, kind of the thing that I am drawn to. Interesting. Well, thank you for keeping it alive, especially um, as we get further away from it and we are losing the survivors. It's really important to keep um, the history real so that, you know, we don't have the denial and the the forgetting that unfortunately can bring horrific acts back to us. And we don't want to see that again. I do want to ask you one last question before we sort of close. You know, you teach writing at the university level, and we've talked a little bit about that. And I wonder how teaching writing affects your own writing. Like, does it help you have a fine-tuned, like, editor's eye on your own writing? Does it keep it fresh because you're always evaluating writing and sort of picking apart how to go about it? Or is it is it a compliment in some way? Like, you know, what, what do you think the, the effect is? It helps me understand how, how do I, I want to answer this? It's good because I see these ghostly images of myself as a beginning writer. Mm-hmm. And it helps me remember the struggles that I sort of had. And I think that helps me with my students. Mm-hmm. And as I'm working you know, as I, as I, as, as I, you know, plow the fields of my own work and try to make them better, I look at what my students are doing and they are not inhibited by much of anything. You know, I let go, I just say, go and write. And they, they do these really courageous off the wall things that I used to do mm-hmm. <laughs> um, before, before I knew better. And I love, I love reading their work and I'm like, oh, wow, that's an interesting sort of idea there. Or, you know, the, the way they set the scene or something like that. I, I love their their almost uh, reckless creativity. And mm-hmm. I find that really nourishing. Yeah, that's cool. So um, in closing, I usually end each show by asking my guests about um, our focus, which is meaning and purpose and how people find meaning and work and purpose in life. And um, so I wonder if you could offer any advice to our listeners about how you go about finding your personal meaning and then put it to work for you. Um, whether professionally or personally in your life. That's one of the things that I appreciate about um, the whole concept of your, your podcast is, is, you know, making, make, make meaning and trying to figure out 
really, you know, why are we here? And I have given some thought to that. I mean, not just because of the podcast, uh, but, you know, really, um, I want to know, well, how do I find meaning in my writing and how can I give meaning to others? And I think this is one reason why I enjoy teaching so much, mm-hmm. because I feel like my job as a writer is to tap into any sort of unfulfilled potential that I might have as a writer and to share stories that might be in danger of being buried. Mm -hmm. So there's that avenue of it. But I really find it so wonderful that I'm afforded the possibility that I can encourage college students to maybe, you know, be a little braver in how they might approach their own lives and to maybe help them see their own unfulfilled potential Mm -hmm. that, um, and, you know, I teach in the Midwest, so everyone is, you know, a little little quieter, I suppose, than in other parts of, of, of the United States. And most of my kids come from these small little towns, and they're, they're really smart. And I just love the fact that they come to this, this place where I teach, and uh, we send them in directions that they cannot even imagine when they enter. I mean, yeah. who, could, who could ask for a better, a better job than that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So Patrick Hicks, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so excited to hear about book number three when it comes out. So best of luck in writing it. But thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.